Well, in many things in life, there is no neutral ground. I'm reminded of when I would give tests as a teacher, and I would do the true-false tests, right? You know, those that everybody loves to hate. How many times I would give a true-false test, and I would tell my students, it's true 100% or it's false. And I'd get kids afterwards who would come up and go, but this statement is like 98% true. And I would say, is it 100% true? And they would say, well, no. Okay, then it's false. And they'd go, but it's mostly true. It doesn't matter because there's no neutral ground on a true-false test. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I, I tried to be sneaky sometimes, and I'd try to write my T's and make them look a little bit like F's so that my teacher would go, well, I don't know what that is. Maybe he got the answer right. Unfortunately, most of the time they just said, can't read it, mark it off. See, we like to make, we, we, we like statements that are clear cut, this or that. We like the true versus the false. Because neutral, it just doesn't sit well with us. You know, in, in, in logic, there is a, uh, a law of logic called the law of non-contradiction. And this is the idea that if something says it's true, it can't at the same time be false. So let me give you an example. I don't speak any English. That statement, if it's true, it's also false, so therefore the statement is 100% false. Or how about, I'm not here right now, but I am here right now, so the statement can't be true and be false. See, you can work yourself into all sorts of little logical conundrums, and your brain just goes, ah, oh, this is too much thinking for a Sunday morning. Just wait. <laughs> See, there's, we, we want to many times find that neutral ground. And most of the time, that neutral ground does not exist. And when it comes to our relationship with the Lord, there is no neutral ground. I think this was, uh, f well, I, I saw a funny video, right? That, this could go any direction now, huh? I saw a funny video this week. It's from a movie. Now, this movie was made in 1948, so no, I did not see it on the first run. It's called A Southern Yankee, and it stars Red Skelton. Anybody remember Red Skelton? Okay, so he's kind of a, a comedian, like a Jim Carrey kind of guy who is kind of bumbling and kind of does dumb things, and so he is in a comedy about the American Civil War. Those are two words I never thought would go together, comedy and civil war. But in the war, he is a soldier, and he's trying to get from one place to another place, but there just so happens to be a battle in between him and where he's trying to go. And so he goes, oh, man, i got to walk between the Union and the Confederates. What do I do? So he came up with a red skeleton plan. He took two uniforms, cut them right down the middle, and he had a gray on this side and a blue on this side. But he was worried. He was like, that may not be enough. So he grabbed himself a flag, and on one side he had the stars and stripes, and on the other side he had the Confederate rebel flag, and he decided to march between the two armies. As he's marching between the two armies, the armies are firing, and they stop, and they go, look at that guy, he's a hero. He's marching our flag right in the middle between those, those Union, those Yankees, and the Yankees are saying, look, he's marching between us and the rebels, what a hero. And of course, Red Skelton starts to pump his chest up, and he's walking through there, and then wouldn't you know, the wind changes directions. <laughs> and that flag now flips the other way. And so both sides begin going, he's a traitor! And they start, instead of shooting at each other, they start shooting at him. 
And because it's a comedy, he gets away and doesn't even get a scratch. So why do I share that? Well, see, I think many of us think that there is a neutral ground when it comes to Christ. When it comes to how we see God, we want this middle ground where we're kind of in, but we're kind of out. We want to be just enough in so that we get all the benefits, but we don't want to be too in because we don't want to be one of those religious crazy people. We don't want to be someone who's totally sold out because that might be the wrong side. And so we have this back and forth. Now, this sermon is not about the back and forth in politics, nor is it about back and forth in media. We don't have time to waste on that. This is too important. We have to be right where we're supposed to be with Christ. Not halfway in, halfway out. Not on the other side altogether, but 100% His. If one thing has been made clear through our study of Matthew so far is that Christ demands loyalty. And it's got to be complete loyalty. Nothing else will work. So our big idea today, if you're taking notes, is one cannot be neutral on Jesus. Either he's your Lord or he's not. You cannot be neutral on Jesus. Now, if you've been in church for any amount of time and you have given your life to Christ, you hear a big idea like that and you go, hmm, Pastor John's doing an evangelism message today. Well, if you haven't noticed, every message is evangelistic. But it's also a good opportunity for us to look at ourselves and go, whether I've followed Christ for a year or I've followed him for 60, am I 100% his? Are there little areas of my life that I have decided are mine and mine alone and don't belong to Christ? Because Christ says, you're either 100% mine or you're not. So that's a scary place to be in. So today, as we're looking at this, don't tune it out because you think this is an evangelistic message for people who don't know the Lord. This is 100% a message for each and every one of us, whether we know the Lord or whether we don't. So let's get into this. This is the last of the miracles in this section. Next week, we kind of have a summary statement where Jesus sends out some of the uh, disciples and kind of tells them what their goal is. But this is the last of 10 healings. And this one is chosen on purpose by Matthew. One author writes that these miracles are a literal, dazzling display of the preview of his kingdom. And I can't help but be excited about that. This morning I was talking to uh, one of you and he was talking about having to deal with some health issues. And, and I was so encouraged by the fact that that health issue is not going to be an issue in the kingdom. That health issue is not something we have to deal with when we're in heaven, when we're on the, on the new earth with our new bodies. We don't have to worry about them breaking down. We don't have to worry about all the diseases and things like that. And so this is Jesus saying, this is what my kingdom looks like. Be careful. Watch this. Don't miss it. But this miracle is different, isn't it? We just read through it. There's been, like I said, 10 miracles, and, and there's also been a calming of a storm. There's been a bunch of stuff in these last two chapters, chapters 8 and 9. But this one is really odd. Peter's mother-in-law, the healing of his mother-in-law, is also not like all the rest. But even this one is, is way different. There's no faith mentioned. We don't know if the, the demon-possessed man becomes a believer. We don't even hear a single word from Jesus or his disciples. We aren't told how Jesus heals this man. Not only that, but afterwards the man begins speaking, and Matthew doesn't tell us what he says. So this is kind of an outlier miracle. But there's a reason for this. Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is not focusing on the miracle, but the responses to the miracle. 
What was the response of the crowd? What was the response of the Pharisees? And he's putting that out there so we can see what would our response be. So let's get into it. Verse 32. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. Notice again, we have one of those beholds. Matthew saying, surprise, not what you expected. This demon-possessed guy comes up. And this demon-oppressed man who was mute. So it says they're going away. This means that they were leaving the house that they were in last week. So remember last week we had the the house that Jesus went into as the blind men followed him, whatever house that was. It could have been Peter's house. It could have been some other house they were using. So Jesus is in the process of leaving, and this guy comes up. Then it says he was demon-oppressed. So I want to take a second and make sure we understand what is going on here with the word demon. Because there's a lot of people who've made a lot of money off of teaching you things about demon that is not, are not true. And most of those are in Hollywood or um, in other television venues and things like that. But there's also a lot of teachers out there, whether they're Christian or not, that teach things about demons that, that, that are not supported by the Bible. So what does the Bible say about demons? Well, first of all, many times they're called unclean spirits. And they're associated with spiritual affliction of some sort. Many times in the Bible, they're connected with idols. As a matter of fact, Paul even goes on to say, when you are worshiping an idol, you are worshiping a demon and these other false gods. See, we like to think that when we look back and we see all these gods that, you know, the Greeks and the Romans and every other culture worshiped, we like to think, boy, they're creative, but that's really weird that they would sacrifice stuff to them. What if by chance there was a demon who some sort of animated, did something to make those people believe it. So they're not as gullible as you'd think. So these idol worshipers and these sacrifices, these things that they would give to these local gods, they were offering up to demons. Now, there's not a lot in Scripture that describes where these demons came from. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, there's only three times that the word demon is even used. In the New Testament, outside the Gospels, where Jesus is interacting with them a lot, there's only ten mentions of them. And four of those are in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So what can we glean from this? Well, first of all, Matthew didn't want to tell us any more than that he was demon-oppressed. He doesn't give words to the demon, doesn't describe what the demon's doing. He just says, demon-oppressed, he's mute, and then moves on. So what can, we, what can we glean from this? Well, first of all, most of what is written and talked about with demons in our world is speculation. That's what we see. They're not from reliable sources. Even if they're first-person encounters with something, those are not reliable sources, and they're not what the Lord put in his Holy Scripture for us to know. And we must constantly remember, and this is in the Bible throughout, demons, their goal is to deceive, to distract, and to confuse. And so if we go in and we go into speculation We are actually entering into the field where the demons have their expertise because we're entering into a place where their goal is to sow confusion. Well, does the Bible say this? Was the Bible don't say this? I don't know, but I'm going to take my time and go away from the Bible. That's exactly what the demons want. So for our purposes today, based on what Matthew's talked about and what has been revealed in Scripture, we know that demons are real, they're personal, they're dark, they want people to cower in fear, They want to deceive and they want to oppress. And in this particular case, the oppression has resulted in this man not being able to speak. 
So that's what we know. Now, granted, there's a lot of studies out there, and, and if you want to know more of what some of those verses say in the Bible, I would love to talk to you afterwards. But we're not going to focus on the demons, because that's not what Matthew's focusing on. So we're done with this talk on demons. We're going to move into what Matthew gets into. So we see this word mute here. It's a Greek word that means not able to speak and not able to hear. So this guy, whatever it was that this demon was doing to him, it was deafness and not being able to speak. Now, what Matthew is not saying is that every person that's deaf or every person that's unable to speak has a demon. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying in this specific instance, this is what's happening. Then it says, he was brought to him. Brought to him. Who brought him? Matthew, who brought him? What was it? Was it another one of those crawl through the ceilings and drop him down in front of you? Was it they were dragging him along? Was it that he didn't want to come and he was kicking and screaming? We don't know. We have no information. Because Matthew's point is not who brought them. His point is not what this guy was doing with the demon. The point was he healed him, and then how do you respond? What's the response? Jesus is finishing out the fulfillment of Isaiah 35, which says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. That was last week. And the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then verse 6, Then the lame shall leap like a deer. We saw that a few weeks ago. And the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. So Jesus is, again, solidifying the fact that he is the Messiah. This is a prediction for the Messiah, and he has now met every single part of it. So this leads to the two responses, and this is where Matthew wants us to go. Are we going to respond with popularity and praise, or are we going to respond with opposition and resistance to him? Verse 33. When the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. The mute man spoke. He was healed. We don't know what he said, but he said lots. He probably had a lot on his mind to share. It says he was cast out. The the demon was cast out. This means that Jesus threw him out. We don't know how Jesus did this. We've seen Jesus touch people. We've seen Jesus use words. We've seen Jesus just be near And in this situation, we don't know what he did. And probably because if we knew what Jesus was doing here, we would try to do the same. But remembering that he is God, he can do it the way he chooses. Spurgeon notes here that the Lord does not deal with the symptoms of the man, but instead goes right to the source. Right to the source. The Lord's mission is to fix us at the source. Not deal with all of our needs, felt needs, but to deal with our true need and then our felt needs get taken care of. So again, the miracle is not really the point. But the division between those who marveled and those who deride Jesus is the point. So this last miracle, like I said, is the 10th miracle we've seen, the 10th healing we've seen. And really what I think Matthew's saying here is he's saying Jesus can heal them all. Jesus can heal everything. As a matter of fact, next week in verse 35, we're going to look at this, but this is the verse. Jesus went through all the cities, teaching their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel, and healing every disease and every affliction. Matthew wants us to see that he's healed all of them. There's not one that's outside of his control. From what we would deem a small thing to the biggest, death. So Matthew is saying he can heal them all. But Matthew has also brought up throughout that it's not just the healings that, are, that matter, but also the faith that matters. See, again, Matthew, verse 35 tells us there were lots and lots of healings that Matthew didn't write down. 
So the ones he wrote down are teaching us something. Matthew is teaching us about Jesus through what he did. And one of the things he teaches us is that each of our faith is going to be a little bit different than each other. We see this. We see the bold faith of the paralytics. Friends who come and they dig a hole in someone's ceiling to interrupt Jesus' teaching to have their friend healed. We see the touching faith of the woman who says, if I could just touch his robe, I will be healed. We see the deathless faith of a father who says, my daughter's dead, but you know what? You're bigger than that. You can heal my daughter. And then last week we saw the pursuing faith where the two blind men go, there's, there's no way we're not going to Jesus. We're going to continue to follow him. And then Matthew here goes, what kind of faith do you have? What's the faith that you are going to bring to this story? Are you impressed by Jesus or are you distressed by Jesus? Will you be mute or will you speak up and make a decision? It says, they marveled. This means to be amazed. We've seen this word a couple times before. When they say they were marveling and they said, never has there been anything like this in Israel. That should ring a bell because back in chapter 8, verse 10, Jesus did the same thing. When Jesus heard, verse 10, when Jesus heard this, this is the faith of the centurion, Jesus marveled, same word, and said to those following him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. This is a, a broad statement. Jesus is kind of bookending this story and saying, this is where the people are getting to. They're marveling at Jesus. They had never seen anything like this before. See, because when the Pharisees and the scribes, who had been teaching these people for years and years, when they taught, no one got healed. When they taught, nothing happened. But instead, when Jesus speaks, demons flee. Storms are calmed. The sickness is reversed. The dead are coming back to life. Sins were forgiven. Nothing had happened like this before. And that's because the kingdom had not arrived until Jesus got there. So the kingdom is there. Verse 34. But... The Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. Now, these Pharisees have been with Jesus the entire time, all of chapter 8 and chapter 9. And Matthew doesn't really point that out like some of the other Gospels do, but we kind of see them from time to time jumping in. It's interesting that the centurion has faith as a Gentile. The tax collector has faith as a great sinner. And irony of ironies, the religious leaders are blind. They can't see what's right in front of them. When they said he's casting out demons by the prince of demons, that means he's empowered by them. Phillips' translation says he is in league with the devil. Now notice what's not being done here. The Pharisees don't go, we don't believe in these miracles. They're fake, right? Because they can't. See, this, we, we have this mindset that this is kind of all over the place, but Jesus is still right around Capernaum. He's been in Capernaum. These Pharisees live in that community. The people that are getting healed live in that community. So we've got little Billy comes in, and he's been blind his whole life. You can't fake that, that Jesus healed him. You've got Joey, who's got a demon, and he's mute. He comes in the door. Jesus heals him. And guess what? He can speak. You can't fake that. Jesus isn't bringing random strangers up on the stage to heal things that aren't there. These are the people that they know. So the Pharisees can't deny Jesus' power. So instead, they deny where it comes from. They deny the source of his power. See, the Pharisees are going to accuse Jesus continually. They started out with blasphemy. They say, you can't say you forgive sins. Then they say, you are befriending outcasts. You're befriending sinners. Then they said, you're impiety. Your impiety is showing. You're unholy. 
And now they say, you're serving Satan. See, Matthew has shown us that the Jews, that the Pharisees, do not like what Jesus is doing. He's undermining their religious authority. He's pointing out their hypocrisy. He's showing their hearts for what they are. See, the Pharisees have an idol. The idol is that they wanted to be the ones to say, thus saith the Lord. And as soon as an idol gets poked in someone's life, they react. And the Pharisees are reacting and they're saying, no, you are the devil, not us. While the Pharisees question and debate and dissect Jesus, Jesus is calmly healing all those around him. I mean, just think about that. Like the Pharisees are going, yeah, Jesus, well, who did you do that for? Hold on a second. I'm going to heal this person. What were you saying? I mean, that, that's really what we're seeing here is Jesus is going around and he's teaching and healing and the Pharisees are interrupting and Jesus is going, just a second, let me go over here and show my power that you're doubting. Let me show this power for healing that you say comes from the devil. Their skepticism is not based on insufficient evidence. Their skepticism is based on their pride and their sin. Now, it's interesting here. Jesus doesn't go to the leaders to fix the society, does he? He doesn't go in and go, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have all of these Pharisees come to know the Lord. If you were making up a story, which some people say all of this is, all of what we believe is, you're not going to have the God of the universe go to the dregs. You're going to have him go right into Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate's going to be a believer because he's the best of the best. He's the smartest. He's the leader. And then you'd have all these, these social leaders become believers, and you'd have this great story because you're saying, this story is true. But that's not what we see. That's because this is a true story and recognizes the fact that leaders many times have sold themselves out to being in leadership and their power that they don't want someone else over them. Today, where do we see Christ working in people's lives? Is it in our leaders? We've got godless politicians, and yes, on both sides of the aisle. We've got godless billionaires. We've got godless movie stars. We've got godless musicians. We've got plenty of godless news anchors, no matter the channel. And on and on and on. If we wait for the godless leaders to get their act together and follow Jesus, we're not going to see it. Because guess what? All these godless leaders, they are going to bow to Christ. But it's going to be at the last moment, and it's already too late for them. Because what does the Bible say? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Some will do it on their way to hell because they just came in contact with the God of the universe. If we're waiting for the best and the brightest of our world to follow Christ, we're going to be waiting a very long time. We should still pray for them and we should still try to reach them. And I love the fact that there are those occasional little outliers out there that are people that are those little islands of not godless. But for the most part, our leaders are on the wrong side of the spectrum. And because of this, our leaders in media, in politics, in government, all across the board are pushing people a direction. Let's be honest here. They're not sort of pushing people to Christianity and then a lot to not Christianity. No, they are on the highway to hell. They are pushing people a direction because that's the direction the world's going to go. That's the direction the ruler of this world's going to go. It's all about godless. We should not be surprised that this is where things are going. So ask yourself, as I'm consuming, as I'm following, as I'm discussing, as I'm looking at these leaders and the things in this world, am I point, being pointed to Christ or am I being pointed to a political agenda? Am I being pointed to a potential catastrophe or 
blaming or whatever. What am I being pointed to? And if we are honest with ourselves, we spend a lot of time being pointed a direction that has nothing to do with Jesus. Our world wants to worship the fake religion of sex. Our world wants to worship the fake religion of a past that didn't exist. Our world wants to uh, worship common sense, whatever that may mean in a fallen world. Every single one of those is fake. There is one true God. And if we want to entertain any of that, we have divided loyalties and we are not 100% Christ, so we are 100% the other. It doesn't matter if you're conservative or liberal and Christian. It matters, are you a Christian? First, foremost, end of discussion. Because this is all about loyalty. Jesus has started right from the very beginning. He says, I am the king. Are you going to follow me? I am the king. Give fealty to me. I love that word, fealty, which means loyal devotion for a lifetime. Jesus is saying, are you going to follow me? Or are you going to follow something else and try to squeeze me in? Now, even if Jesus is 98% true in your life and 2% somewhere else, you're still not 100% Jesus. And that's what he demands because he is the one true king. He's made it so clear. There is no neutral ground with Jesus. Either you're his 100% or you're not. Let me show you where we see this in the Gospel of Matthew. This section here is looking both forward and backwards. So forwards, it's foreshadowing what's coming next. The crowds are going to turn on Jesus. The Pharisees are going to get more intense to the point they're going to put him to death. Majority will side with Jesus for a moment, and then the majority will cheer his death. Next week when we celebrate the triumphal entry on Sunday, our kids will do all the Hosanna stuff and we'll discuss that. We have to remember that Jerusalem was in an uproar. They were cheering for Jesus. And five days later, they are saying, kill him, murder him, destroy him. We would take a robber, a thief, an insurrectionist in his place. The Bible does, though, end with a note. In the book of Revelation, we are, talk, we are told that there is a remnant. There is always a group that stays with Christ. And even the disciples, when they go and hide, they're still devoted to Christ. And we need to understand the majority never goes with Christ this side of Judgment Day. Now we can look backwards as well. When we look backwards at Matthew starting in chapter 4 all the way through 9, we see that Jesus has been really saying this over and over again. But when you see them all stacked up next to each other, you go, yeah, that's right. Jesus is saying there's no neutrality. So remember, Jesus says we are to be salt. And he says salt only has value if it's salty. If it's not salty, it's worthless and just throw it away. And what he's saying is you're either salt or you're not. Keeps going. We are to be a light. We're to be a light. We're to be a light on a hill that shines for everywhere. We should not cover up the light. We should not have it be covered. He's saying there's light and then there's dark. Which one are you? Then he moves on and he says, there is a narrow gate, a narrow gate, one. There is one gate. There is one way. Then he says there's a wide gate and many will find it. He says that because there's only two ways. There's no neutral. Think about that. Try that in your mind for a second. How can you enter two gates at the same time? You can't. Right? Law of non-contradiction. I can't be going through this gate over here and that gate over there without some major surgery, right? Ripping me in half. 
And then the narrow and the difficult road. He says the road's going to be difficult that you're going to be on. Then there's this wide road. You can't be in both. The good tree. He says a good tree bears what? Good fruit. Not some good fruit. Not a good fruit. But good fruits. Right? Plural. Lots of fruit. And what does a bad tree bear? Bad fruit. So that you'll know the tree by what it bears. Then it says, you are known by God versus being unknown by God. Not sort of known, not kind of known, but fully known by God. How about building on the rock? It says, build on the rock. Don't build on the sand. How ridiculous would it be? Well, I'm going to build some of my house on the rock and some of it on the sand. They're going to be all combined, and it's going to be really reinforced by the rock. Well, I'm sorry, the sand part's going to begin falling, and it's going to pull the rock part off. So there is no both. He says, follow me. Follow me. Not follow somebody else and then you know, work me in. Follow me. Not sort of follow me. And Jesus hits this. He says, don't follow me for glory. Don't follow me when it's convenient and your finances are in order. Don't follow me once you've buried your father. Remember that passage. He says, follow me now and follow me only. So this all looks really cut and dried, like black and white, binary. Like, we know, people don't like that. We go, but I'm not 100% Jesus is right now. The next part is the best part. He calls sinners. And that's all of us. Every single one of us. If we're not 100% his, we can fix that right here and right now. It's not something we have to wait and do certain things. No, it's a one-on-one relationship with Christ. This moment. And we can be right with Christ. In a few minutes, we're going to take communion together. And a part of that communion time is not just, i got to get in line and get my special bread and juice and so on. It's, I have to examine myself. Lord, where am I holding out? Where's, where's those little pockets of rebellion in my life that are not yours? And I'm going to confess those. And guess what? They're gone. Come up here and eat. You know, I, I like to throw history at you guys sometimes. I want to throw you guys a history word. This is a word called mugwump. Mugwump. M-U-G-W-U-M-P. It's actually based on an Algonquin word, which meant warrior. And that was in the early 1800s. It was used in politics. And you were a mugwump. It meant you were a mighty warrior. Well, over time, political cartoonists grabbed a hold of this word and really changed the meaning of it. By the end of the 1800s, to be called a mugwump was actually a put-down. What it meant was your mug, your head, was on one side of the fence, and your wump was on the other side. And so if you were called a mugwump, it meant that you were trying to balance both sides. And so this was, this was political suicide. If, you said, if they, someone said you were a mugwump, it meant you weren't for either side. You were Red Skeleton walking down the middle of the battle. Both sides are going to shoot at you. See, in Christ's kingdom, you're either in or you're out. You cannot be both. Now, this doesn't mean that if we're believers, we're taught go hide in some place away from all the non-Christians, right? That's not what the Bible says. And as a matter of fact, Paul attacks that. And he says, you can't do that. You have to be in the world, but not like the world. You are the exile. You are the one that's here that's different because you are trying to win as many as you can. That's what it's all about. It's about the loyalty. Am I going to be loyal to my king in this foreign land that's telling me, you don't need the king, come join us. Am I going to be loyal?
See, there's two possible relationships between faith and miracles, as we've seen throughout. Sometimes the faith produces a miracle. Other times, miracles produce faith. But there's a third option, and it's what the Pharisees do here, is they see the miracle. They see the faith, and they go, I don't want anything to do with it. Ultimately, the Pharisees do show us that there is no neutrality. And why is it that the Pharisees are blind? Well, 2 Corinthians 4, Taylor read it at the beginning. This is what it says. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. See, they're blinded by the world. They're blinded by the God of this world. That's a little g God. That's not God the Father. That's the devil. That's whatever system is around them. They're being blinded by it. So we're going to look here as we, we wrap up at three types of people. Now you're probably going, wait a second, I thought we only had two types of people. You've been saying this whole time, Pastor John, that there's in and there's out. And now you're throwing a third one in there. Okay, just, just bear with me for a sec. Matthew does list two. And if we're honest, if we were to come to the book of Matthew, having never read anything in the Bible, and we come in with a blank slate, and we were, came up and I said, okay, I'm going to read you this story about the God of the universe becoming a man. And there's going to be groups of people that come and hear him speak. We would probably guess that the people that saw all the miracles and were marveling at it would follow him. We would also probably guess that the most intellectually smart, the biggest religion people would also follow him. I mean, that's what we would think, right? We would come to it and we'd go, yeah, of course the Pharisees should follow Jesus. I mean, they have the Bible memorized. And of course the crowds, they've seen all these miracles. Why wouldn't they? But what's interesting is, is that both of those groups actually don't end up following him. So the first group we're going to look at is the crowds that marveled at him. Those who follow Jesus because it makes sense to them, it's kind of entertaining, they like what they're seeing. As a matter of fact, there's several times in the Bible where they go, Jesus, could you do another miracle? We, we're kind of we're getting a little bored here. Come on, show us something. Or we're getting hungry, make some more food for us. And they're clearly there for the miracles. And Jesus laments this. And he says, you're only here because I fed you. You're only here because I'm entertaining you. Jesus is the son of God. Many in our world want to make Jesus our homeboy or our friend or somebody that we talk about. The crowd stays with Jesus until it gets hard and then they all walk away. The crowds hold him in awe. It's, it's interesting, you know, when, when people see Jesus, and we, we have a term that we throw around in church, we call them a seeker, and, and that's the people that come, and they want to hear about Jesus, and they'll go, eh, I'll decide next week, and they go away. And then they come again, and they hear, and then, eh, I'll decide next week, and they do this back and forth thing, not ready to make a commitment. But what we need to remember is that every time it's presented to you, and you don't make a commitment, you're making a denial. You're saying, no, it's not for me. So these crowds, every time that Jesus says, okay, here's a miracle, and here's my teaching. I am the Son of God. Put your faith and trust in me. And they go, oh, I think I need a few more miracles. You know, Jesus, could you, you know, I would believe if you would walk on the water while at the same time giving me some food and then calling down some lightning, and then I'm totally yours. I mean, that's really what they're doing. And we do the same thing. The longer you go, before you submit to Christ, the harder it is. If Christ is calling your heart right now, if he is pulling you, this is the day. Follow him. Follow him fully. 
Because to walk out these doors and go, I'll decide some other time, or it's not for me yet, it's just going to be harder. The longer you go, the harder it's going to be. And what we see with this crowd is the longer they go, the easier it is for them to become just like the Pharisees. It takes a mere four days from the triumphal entry to the crucify him. Because neutrality is not an option. And the crowds don't follow Jesus. The next thing we see is we see the proud, the Pharisees. This leader-like attitude. Now, this is, this is hard to hear. But in order to be successful in our world, you're going to have to not follow Christ. I mean, it's really going to be hard to be the best of the best in the world's standings and what they say is important and at the same time follow Christ. Is it impossible? No, but it is really, really hard. I'm reminded of someone that um, I, I look up to. His name's Tim Tebow. He's a professional football player. Well, was. Tim Tebow was known for being a Christian. When he was in the NFL, he, he prayed and he talked about the fact he was saving himself for marriage and all of those things. And the world hated him for it. So much so that a group of people got together and they put a bounty out on Tim Tebow. Not to shoot him, not to hurt him on the football field, but to seduce him to take away his virginity so that that way they could say, see, he's just as bad as everybody else. Now that's an extreme case. And yeah, each of you is a believer and you're out there in the world, but it's going to be harder and harder for us as Christians to be successful when the world says you have to assent to this statement. You have to wave this flag. You have to stand for this. You have to say these words. It's only going to get harder and harder. And see where the Pharisees are at, the Pharisees were going, if I follow Jesus, which by the way, we only know of one, maybe, who followed Jesus out of the hundreds they would have to give up their livelihood. And because they walked away from being a Pharisee, they might even die for it. They would lose everything. Spouse might divorce them. Family might disown them. I'm reminded of when I was in Morocco. I visited with a man. He was the first believer in his family. He had a wife and seven kids. He came from a family of eight brothers and sisters. And every single one of them would kill him on sight if they saw him. Because he said, I am a follower of Christ. That's what our world is like for followers of Christ. And so these Pharisees are a great example here of us, of that we cannot be successful as the world says and be committed 100% to Christ. They do not go together. Now we need to be humble here because the Pharisees were very religious. We are very religious. It's easy to pick on them. But at the same time, we need to learn from them. So these two groups are both outside of the kingdom. Why? Because they don't follow the path that they must follow. First, they must have faith in Christ, that he is the one who can do it. Second, they have to confess that faith, not only with their mouths, but with their entirety of their being. And then third, they have to follow him, and they have to continue following him from that point till the end of their lives. The Pharisees, they loved their traditions and their religion, and they opposed Jesus because of that. The crowds, they loved their entertainment. They loved to have the newest shiny thing right in front of them. And Jesus was just the next one. And so they wanted that instead of following and submission. But there was one other group. And this is the group that went through the narrow gate and stuck to the narrow path. And this were the, these were the faithful. These were the people that were full of faith. 
We've seen them already. We saw the leper in verse 2 of chapter 8. We saw the centurion man in chapter 8, verse 5. We saw the paralyzed friends in verse 2 of chapter 9. We saw the sick woman who'd been bleeding. We saw the grieving dad. We saw the blind men. All of these show their faith. They say, I have nothing except for whatever you will do for me, Christ. That's faith. Not only that, but we have Matthew himself, the story of Matthew, where he abandons his lifestyle. He was a wealthy, wealthy man. He was a tax collector. He had more money than he knew what to do with, and he renounces it all. See, that's the group that we want to be in, that holy remnant. It's a small group, but it's the group that are faithfully following the king. So Matthew is asking us, who are you? Are we proud lovers of tradition and religion and having it the way we've always had it? and wanting to be successful in the world's eyes? Or are we the amazed follower of Christ who wants spectacle and surprise and wisdom, but not really amazed enough to change anything in our lives? Or are we the faithful follower who renounces it all for the king? Which one are we? See, when we become that last one, we get, not only do we follow this king, but we get adopted into his family. We become a part of Jesus' family. He is our king, and he is our older brother. We become members of his family through his life, death, and resurrection. Not through anything we do, but through everything he's done. And we show this by our loyalty to him. We desire to be near him. And yes, we desire to be near each other. This is a family reunion every single Sunday. Yes, we have some crazy uncles in our family. And yes, we're not perfect, and we're more likely to mess it up than not. But when we come together as a family, not New Life Gladstone, that's not the family I'm talking about. When I'm talking about the family of Christ, the Christians across the world, when we come together, part of what we do when we're here is to remind each other of the commitments we've made. Because you spend six days outside of this building with the world hammering you. We need this. We need to come together. We need to see smiling faces. We need to shake hands. We need to meet new people. We need to get hugs if you're okay with that. We need all of that because we need that family to help us remember who we belong to, to help us forget about that 3% in our life that the world has and go 100% into Christ. 